This morning, we are continuing in a series that we began many weeks ago, and it's called The Battle for Truth, for those of you who are new with us. And the last time we were in this series, we started looking at the question, how can we know God exists? You know, those of us who are Christians, we want to see people saved. And we want them to embrace the Bible as God's truth because we know it's the only thing that will build them up in the faith and guide them in their walk with God as well as with the practical issues of their lives. And so we want them to come to know God's Word as His truth. But as we said last time, the sad reality is we are living in a post-Christian era, a time when many people in our nation don't even believe in the existence of God, let alone that the Bible is His Word. People today are very skeptical. And many of them are going to want you to prove to them that God exists before they will listen to why you believe the Bible is his word. So how do you prove to somebody that God exists? Well, some Christians would say, well, you can't. It's a matter of faith. And certainly, faith is involved. But the Bible itself gives us two main proofs for the existence of God. First of all, the creation proves that God exists. Now, we looked at this last time, but let me review quickly. The psalmist said, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. In other words, the creation speaks a universal language to every person on the face of the earth, telling them that God exists. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now, last time we presented two arguments from creation for the existence of God. The first was called the cosmological argument which basically says that everything that had a beginning had to have a cause. It's called the principle of causality. We showed last time that scientists have proven the universe had a beginning. Therefore, the universe had to have a cause. Now, you got two possibilities for the cause of the universe and everything in it and all life on Earth. The first is that the universe came from nothing all by itself through a massive explosion, which the scientists call the Big Bang. That's the atheist view which basically says everything came from nothing all by itself. Or you have the theist view, which says the universe was created by an intelligent, all-powerful being that we call God. Now, of those two possibilities, which is the most likely as the one that explains the origin of everything? Well, let me ask you this. Does an explosion produce design? If you were to take, go to a junkyard, take a bunch of scrap metal, put it into a pile, and dynamite it, when the smoke cleared, would you, would you, you think you'd be looking at a Cadillac? <laughs> of course not. A Cadillac is a highly complex piece of machinery. Incredible technology and design went into making that automobile. If something has design, we realize it had to have a designer. Because explosions don't produce design. And that brings us to the teleological argument, the argument from design, which basically says every design had to have a designer. Does the universe and life bear witness of design? It's what the scientists call 
specified complexity. Specified complexity is the difference between randomness and design. The Grand Canyon, a great example of natural forces producing random results. Mount Rushmore, another rock formation, but obviously it bears witness of design. So we realize there was a sculptor involved in that. That's the difference between randomness and specified complexity. Does the universe and life bear design? Does it demonstrate specified complexity? We looked at life last time. In fact, we said that more, the more science looks at life on this earth, the more our, our scientific knowledge of cells increases, the more complex we realize life really is. The body, for example, is the human body is made up of trillions of cells. In just one of those cells, one out of trillions, there is enough genetic coded information to fill at least a thousand books containing 500 pages each of just the information required to make one cell function in a, in a body of trillions of cells. And most, most scientists believe that that is an underestimation of the complexity in the human body. Where did this digitally coded genetic information come from? Do you realize that the human brain is more complex than a 747 airplane? A 747 is made up of 6 million components. I mean, can you imagine a 747 resulting from an explosion in a junkyard? And yet, if you believe that a Big Bang brought forth this universe and life on Earth, even simple life, you'd have to buy into that because that's about the chances that highly complex life came from non-life spontaneously and then evolved over many, many thousands, if not millions of years into the complex forms of life that our bodies are today. It's absolutely absurd. This kind of specified complexity and design never happens through explosions or random, random natural forces. Never. We looked at the universe itself. Does that show evidence of design? We looked at what was called the anthropic principle, which basically says that the universe is finely tweaked to support life on the earth. We gave you just a few of many, many examples of how scientists, astrophysicists, are realizing that the size of the universe is necessary. And all these things that make the universe a reality are necessary for life to be possible on the earth. And we went into that last time. If you're interested, get the teaching. But we ask ourselves, does the universe have design? Yes, astrophysicists have proven that. Does life on earth bear witness of design? Yes, cellular biologists have told us that. Then there has to be a creator. And so very simply, Everything that had a beginning had a cause. The universe had a beginning, life had a beginning, therefore these things had to have a cause. Did an explosion cause them or did God cause them? If an explosion, then how do you explain the complexity? If you realize that the universe and life bear incredible complexity, then we have to acknowledge the existence of God. Now, that is the external testimony of the creation which proves the existence of God. And here's where we want to pick it up this morning. We also have the internal testimony of our conscience that also proves the existence of God. This is what some have called the moral argument. 
in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Listen to what Paul said. He said, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. What's he talking about? When he says the law, he's referring to the Ten Commandments, basically. Who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. What Paul is talking about here is morality and conscience. Where did morality come from? Where did the innate sense of right and wrong come from if we are just the result of chemical processes? Chemicals are immoral. Chemicals cannot produce morality. Now, the evolutionists can't explain this, but the creationists can. It's because our God is a moral God. Our God declared certain behaviors good and other behaviors evil according to his righteous standard, and then he placed into the heart of man man who he had made in his own image and after his own likeness, he placed into the heart of every person on the face of the earth this innate sense of right and wrong, which we call morality. This sense of right and wrong, which all people possess, gives eloquent testimony to God's existence. C.S. Lewis, who was a great Christian apologist, a defender of the faith, he said, and I quote, every prescription has to have a prescriber. Every moral law has a moral lawgiver. There is a universal moral law. Therefore, there must be a universal lawgiver, end quote. See, we're living at a time when moral relativism rules in the minds of people. But even today, it's still possible to prove that moral absolutes exist. Now, Norm Geisler, again, who is a, just a brilliant Christian apologist, he said his favorite person to debate was a Jewish atheist who didn't believe in moral absolutes. Why? Because every Jew believes in the Holocaust. Every Jew knows the Holocaust happened. And every Jew believes, absolutely believes, that genocide is wrong. And atheists and agnostics and antagonists towards Christianity can talk about moral relativism all they want, that there is no such thing as absolute right and wrong, until you bring up somebody like Adolf Hitler. And then all of a sudden watch them squirm as they realize that they believe that some things are absolutely wrong. It's absolutely wrong to try to exterminate a whole race of people. That's wrong. We all know that. Alan Bloom, who was a professor at the University of Chicago, he said he used to like to use this one on his University of Chicago students. They didn't believe that there were any such thing as moral absolutes. And so he asked them, if you were a part of the British protectorate in India, and they were using the custom back in the rural areas where when a husband died, the living wife was to be cremated with him, and you were in charge, would you allow them to cremate the wife just because the husband died? See, they had a practice back then in the rural areas of India. If a husband died, they would place his body on the funeral pyre, but then they would take the living wife and strap her onto the funeral pyre and cremate both of them. And the question was, if you were a British officer in charge of that area, would you have allowed them to cremate the wife, the living wife, with the dead husband? It's interesting to see college students squirm 
when that kind of a question is posed to them who don't believe in moral absolutes. Why? Because everybody has an innate sense that that kind of thing is wrong. You don't kill a living spouse because her husband died. We know that. And God has given us a conscience to tell us that. Of course, the conscience can be rendered inoperative. You know that? It can be rendered inoperative, what the Bible calls having it seared as with a hot iron. What does that mean? It means that when you begin to do something that God says is wrong and your conscience begins to say to you, you're violating what God has said. You're stepping over the line. You can ignore that. You can drown out that voice of conscience and you can keep doing it until you short-circuit it so that it no longer warns you when you're violating what God has said and then pretty much you're able to do any one of a number of heinous things without any more remorse or any kind of guilt. But that takes some doing. God created each one of us with a functioning conscience that tells us when we're stepping over the line and violating something God says we shouldn't do. And atheists will often say, well, look, there can't be an absolutely perfect, absolutely righteous, just God because look at all the evil and injustice in the world. Now, C.S. Lewis, the former Oxford atheist, said, I used to think that way too, that injustice in the world proves that there cannot be a God. Until I started to think, what does injustice mean? It means not just. So I must have understood what justice was. And if I felt something was absolutely unjust, then I must have been presupposing a standard of absolute justice by which I measured this world to be unjust. In effect, I was positing an absolutely perfect moral standard God in order to argue against God, end quote. In other words, Lewis said, look, I used to be like these other guys who used to say, look, look at all the injustice in the world. That proves there can't be a God. Until I started to think about it. Wait a minute. How do I know what's just and unjust unless a moral God put that in my heart? And as Lewis began to think about it, he began to realize, wait a minute. The knowledge of injustice in the world doesn't disprove God. It actually proves God. And so it was one of the things that God used to bring him to Christ. But that's why Paul the Apostle said in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, excuse me, verses 18 and 19, Paul said the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth of God in their desire to do unrighteousness. For what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. See, this is why people don't believe in God. People don't believe in God not because they don't like God per se. They don't like God's laws. They don't want to be subject to God's laws. And they don't want to have to think that if they violate those laws, they're going to be judged by God someday. They don't want to live with that kind of guilt. They want to do what they want to do, and they don't want anyone to tell them it's wrong to do it, especially God. And so they do away with God. They get rid of God. But that leaves them with a big problem. How did everything get here? How did everything get here? You have to come up with an explanation for the existence of everything. You get rid of God, you've got to come up with some explanation for the universe and life on earth. So you know what they came up with? Naturalism. Naturalism, folks, is the reigning ideology of our day, embraced by most of the intellectuals, scientists, educators, politicians, and judges in our country. A naturalist believes that God only exists 
as a fantasy in the minds of religious non-intellectuals. In our universities, naturalism, which is the belief that nature is all there is, and that everything came into existence through natural processes without any divine fiat, is the virtually unquestioned assumption upon which all matters of life are based today. You don't realize how this has permeated every area of our society. Naturalism forms the foundation for the theory of evolution. And the men that gave us the theory of evolution, Erasmus Darwin, who was Charles Darwin's grandfather, and Charles Lyell, and Charles Darwin himself were men who had a definite agenda. Erasmus Darwin and Charles Lyell were products of the Age of Enlightenment. And that was a movement that tried to throw off the yoke of religion and look to science to be man's god. See, these folks did not want any god looking over their shoulder telling them what they could or couldn't do. Why? Well, guys like Erasmus Darwin, who was a medical doctor, by the way, but he was a very religious man. You say, how so? He worshipped Bacchus and the goddess Venus. Bacchus was the god of drunkenness. Venus was the goddess of sex. So you see where he was coming from. And if you want to live a total Bacchanalian life with no holds barred with regard to sex, you're going to have to do away with the God of the Bible. And so men like Erasmus Darwin, Charles Lyell, they started out to prove the existence of everything apart from God. They didn't start with facts. They didn't start with scientific evidence. They had a definite agenda. It's not hard to prove, folks. Very easy to prove. They were the product of the Age of Enlightenment. And so they had to find a way to discredit the Bible, find a way to cause people to doubt the Bible, primarily the book of Genesis. And so they came up with, with the help of others, they weren't the only ones, but they came up with the theory of evolution. They invented it as a way of doing away with God because they didn't want God interfering in their lives. They wanted to do what they wanted to do, so they had to get rid of God. So what do we do? How do we explain everything? They came up with the theory of evolution. The explanation for the existence of everything apart from God. Charles Darwin, in his own words, said that he rejected Christianity because he couldn't accept the idea of a God who punished sin and sent men to hell if they did not repent of their sins. He called this a damnable doctrine. Why? Because his dad, grandfather, brother, and a lot of his friends did not believe in the Bible or the God of the Bible. He couldn't bear the thought that they would be sent to hell someday and judged. So what do you do? Get rid of God. Pastor John MacArthur put it this way, and I quote, Evolution was invented to kill the God of the Bible, not because evolutionists and materialists and naturalists didn't like God as creator, but because they didn't want God as judge. Evolution was invented in order to kill the God of the Bible, to eliminate the lawgiver, to eliminate the inviolability of his law, the binding standard for human thought and conduct. Evolution was invented to do away with, the universal, with universal morality and universal guilt and universal accountability. Evolution was invented to eliminate the judge and leave people free to do whatever they want without guilt and without conscience, end quote. And I totally agree. God is a moral God. He says some things are good, other things are evil, and he has placed that knowledge in each of our hearts. It's called morality and given us a kind of alarm system that warns us when we violate what God has said, it's called our conscience. But if there's no God, then there's no such thing as absolute right and wrong. So man got rid of God. He didn't realize that to do so would bring upon the human race some very serious consequences. 
not just biologically, but also morally and spiritually. Look, if naturalistic evolution is right and man hasn't been made in God's image because there is no God, then man is no better than any other animal or insect that has evolved on the face of this earth. And so naturalism has given rise to organizations like PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Their director, Ingrid Newkirk, made this famous or actually infamous statement some time ago. She said, this is kind of the motto of PETA, a rat is as a pig, is as a dog, is as a boy. There is no real difference. They're all just different species of animals. All have equal value. Maybe you caught this about a year ago. I remember reading this in the paper about an animal rights group, probably PETA, I can't remember though, that said that killing chickens was equal to the Holocaust. Did you remember reading that? They actually came out and said that it was no different from the Nazis killing the Jews. This kind of idiocy comes because people honestly do not believe that man was made in the image of God. They believe that man is simply a product of evolution like any other animal and he has no purpose for existing and no destiny. But the implications of evolutionary thought go far beyond a group of animal rights nuts. For example, Karl Marx sought to dedicate Das Kapital to Darwin. Karl Marx was an evolutionist. Now, Darwin's family were capitalists, so he declined this dubious honor. But Karl Marx was an evolutionist. Adolf Hitler was a committed evolutionist and used the theory of evolution as the justification for his personal vision of a super race that will grow stronger by wiping out those that were genetically inferior and less evolved. You see, the principle that undergirds all evolution is survival of the fittest. The strong killing off the weak, which strengthens the species and guarantees its survival. The evolutionists call it natural selection. And Hitler believed he was just applying a form of natural selection to mankind. And if you're an evolutionist, how are you going to argue with that? How are you going to argue with that? If you believe that man is just another species of animal, maybe more evolved than other animals, but just an animal, and in the animal world, we see natural selection which takes place, which weeds out the weak and makes the strong even stronger, what's wrong if human beings apply that? Hitler saw it that way. Evolutionists understand the danger of this kind of thinking that this goes way beyond biology. Dr. George Marsden, who was an evolutionist, not a Christian, an evolutionist, he said this, and I quote, Creation scientists are correct in perceiving that in modern culture, evolution often involves far more than biology. Listen to this. The basic ideologies of our civilization, including its entire moral structure, are at risk. Evolution is sometimes the key mythological element in a philosophy, notice, a philosophy that functions as a virtual religion, end quote. Here's an honest evolutionist that says, look, nobody has ever proven vertical evolution, that one kind evolves into another kind. Horizontal evolution, yeah, which is changes within a kind. We've seen that. We've observed that. But nobody has ever observed vertical evolution, lower forms of life evolving into higher, more complex forms. Therefore, for the evolutionists to believe that, it's a matter of faith, which means evolution for the evolutionists is his religion. But the consequences or the implications go way beyond biology. And that's what this gentleman is indicating. Our whole moral structure is at risk 
because in evolution, there are no morals. It's survival of the fittest. If you remove God from society and you substitute evolution as God, you remove the uniqueness of man from the animal kingdom. Again, the Bible says that man was made in the image of God. But if there's no God, then man could not have been made in God's image, and therefore he is no different from any other animal that evolved on this planet. Now here's where the problem comes in. You tell people long enough that they came from animals, it shouldn't surprise us when they act like animals. We see kids growing up today without God, without morals. We see gangs who have taken over our inner cities, who are roaming the streets of our cities like packs of wild animals preying on the weak and the helpless. We see kids bringing guns to school and blowing away teachers who didn't give them the grade they wanted or to kill classmates because somebody looked down on them or made a derogatory remark against them just the other day. Thank God they found a plot that several students in Kansas were, were hatching. They were stirring up a cache of weapons and probably on April 20th, which is the anniversary of Columbine and Adolf Hitler's birthday, they were going to go into their school and kill a bunch of people. Thank God the authorities found out about it, arrested the kids, found this cache of weapons and confiscated it. And we see that on the news and people are horrified. How could this be? How could this be? From the time these kids are in kindergarten, they are taught a humanistic worldview, a philosophy of life void of God where they evolve from animals, a worldview where everything came about by chance and accidents, where there is no purpose for life, no life to come, and no God to answer to. I mean, what do we expect if we teach them that they're animals, that they act like animals? Folks, listen to me. Any philosophy of life that's based on the idea of survival of the fittest, the strong eliminating the weak as the basic means of evolving from lower forms of life to higher, more complex forms, if that's the ideology that's governing man's thinking and shaping his worldview, guess what? It is going to produce a lot of evil consequences, and it has. Just look around. But think about it. If evolution is true, and we're just animals as human beings that have evolved higher than other animals in the animal kingdom, then why should we bother helping the weak or the elderly or the handicapped or the sick? I mean, let's do away with them. Let's embrace infanticide and euthanasia. I mean, why keep these folks around? They're just eating up resources that the rest of us need to grow even stronger and the species needs to become more evolved. I mean, evolution says, look, if they're too weak, they've outlived their usefulness, get rid of them. This will help the strong grow even stronger. And while we're at it, let's just do away with all these third world countries who are not as technologically evolved as we are in the West. Man, they're a huge drain on the planet's resources. Let's just nuke them and get it over with. Get rid of all these people. I mean, isn't it about the strong killing off the weak so that the strong can become even stronger? I mean, if evolution is true, then Hitler was right. And nobody can deny that who is an evolutionist. But let me ask you this. Where does compassion and mercy come from? Evolutionists would say, well, it evolved with us as we evolved. That's baloney. The whole theory of evolution is based on the irrefutable principle of the strong, preying upon the weak, survival of the fittest. I mean, that's the whole basis for evolution. If the strong evolve emotions like compassion and mercy, and they stop preying on the weak, 
then evolution as a philosophy and as a system ceases to exist. can't happen. It wouldn't be. And yet we do see mercy and compassion everywhere, don't we? Sure, we see a lot of cold-heartedness and all, but we still see a lot of mercy and compassion in the hearts of people in this world. I mean, think about it. Every time a tsunami hits some third world country or an earthquake or a plague that begins to wipe people out, why does the whole world mobilize? And we send supplies and medicine and doctors and workers to help them. Why do we do that? If evolution is true, let them die. Decrease the surplus population. It's better for the rest of us. Why is it that we worry about a little baby who was born four or five months premature and we spend thousands of dollars taking care of that child to make sure that it has a fighting chance to, to survive? If it's too weak to, to live, let's let it just die. What do we care? It's not a productive member of society. And why do we provide housing for our elderly that they might live out their remaining years in dignity with medical supervision and so on? Why do we do that? I mean, if evolution is true, why don't we just let them die? They've outlived their usefulness. They're weak. They're a drain on our resources. Why don't we just euthanize them? We do it because life is precious. All life. Any life. And why is life so precious? Because the God who made us is a God of mercy and compassion. And he created us, and then he put within each one of our hearts the sanctity of life. That's why we care. That's why when a little baby girl, 18 months old, falls down some well shaft in her backyard, the whole country mobilizes in prayer. People rush to the scene. Thousands and thousands of dollars are spent bringing in experts and equipment who eventually are able to get to that child and bring her out of that well. Why not just let her die? Because the God who made us says that she's important. Because I've made her. Life is precious. For all of us, not just the strong, but for the weak. Folks, there is no mercy and compassion in the jungle. It's only survival of the fittest. Man is unique from the animal kingdom, and he's unique because our Creator made us unique. Only man has the capacity to reflect his Creator's glory in the way of love and mercy and compassion and kindness. The only explanation for morality and conscience is the existence of God who is a moral God who put his laws into our hearts and then gave us a conscience to warn us when we violated those laws to goad us to repentance. So the testimony of the creation without and the testimony of our conscience within proves that God exists. You say, well, if it's so clear, why don't more people... Why don't more intellectuals believe in God? Listen again to what Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, listen, who suppress the truth of God because they want to live unrighteously. People don't believe, not because they don't have the information. They don't believe because they choose not to believe. Frederick Nietzsche, the great atheist who coined the phrase, God is dead, listen to what he said. He said, if one were to prove this God of the Christians to us, we should be even less able to believe in him, end quote. Now, there's, an, there's, there's a man who's really open, isn't he? <laughs> you could produce God himself right here, Nietzsche says, I still wouldn't believe. 
What's his problem? Was his problem intellectual or volitional? The Bible says the fool has said in his heart, not in his head. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. The heart is the seat of the will. The head is the seat of the intellect. It's not an intellectual issue. It is a moral issue. People reject God not because they don't have the knowledge. God has given it to them everywhere. As I said last time, the Bible never tries to prove the existence of God. It doesn't have to. Why? Because the creation does that. And God has made every one of us smart enough to realize you can't have design without a designer. You can't have something like this and say, whoa, this is interesting. Boy, what explosion produced this? Ridiculous. Obviously, I had designer, a carpenter, somebody who assembled it. It bears witness to complexity. We know this didn't happen by accident. Yet we look at our bodies, which are fearfully and wonderfully made. The most intricate thing on the planet, our brain, is more intricate than any computer that's ever been built. It's the most complex organ. It's the most complex thing in the whole universe. And yet we look at our brain and our body and we say, oh, it just happened one day, I guess. Just a big accident. God is saying, that's why I'm angry. That's why I'm angry. Because I made you smart enough to know that I exist, that I made you. But you suppress that truth because you want to live unrighteously. That's why my anger burns hot against the people of this world. Not because they don't understand, but because they do understand and reject the knowledge of the truth. We worry about the poor native down in some remote island in the Pacific. Or the aborigines somewhere in the backwoods of Australia. Well, if they've never heard, is it fair for God to judge them to hell? Look, God will not judge any, send anyone to hell based on information they don't have. He will send them to hell based on the information that they do have and have rejected. And the creation bears witness to the existence of God, so much so that God says, anybody who rejects me, they are without excuse. I will hold them accountable on the day of judgment. And so the testimony of the creation... And the testimony of the conscience proves that God exists. Now, that doesn't, though, give us any personal or specific information about God himself, does it? What the theologians call general revelation, the creation, can tell us that God exists. It can tell us things like he's a powerful God, must be, to create all this. He's a very wise God because, wow, to create everything and have all these systems, ecosystems and different things, you know, fitting together and working together as just one big unit. Boy, that takes a lot of wisdom. He's a God who must like variety and beauty because we look around, we see it everywhere. But it doesn't give us any specific information about God. It doesn't tell us who he is, what his name is. It doesn't tell us anything about himself other than that he's powerful and wise. It doesn't tell us what he expects of us. See, for that, we need another kind of revelation, what the theologians call special revelation. You say, well, what is special revelation? You have special revelation in your lap today. It's called the Bible. The Bible is God's special revelation to the people of this world. The Bible is God's word. It's where we get up close and personal with God, where he even tells us his name. And we want to start looking at this next week. And I hope that I haven't bored you with trying to prove to you the obvious, because I know that most of you here, 
you already believe in the existence of God, so it's not like I'm trying to prove God exists to you. But we're living in a day when a lot of people don't believe in God. And Peter said, look, always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and humility. We Christians, you know, our faith is not a stupid faith. It's based on facts and evidence. But so often we don't take the time to dig out the facts and learn the evidence. And so when people ask us to prove why God exists, it's like, well, you can't. Well, yes, you can. Not with 100% certain, not 100%. I agree. I admit that. But to any rational person, you can prove that God exists beyond a reasonable doubt. The rest is faith. But our faith is not a blind leap in the darkness. Our faith is just the next step where the evidence leaves off. It points in the direction the evidence is leading, which is to God. And so we want to begin now to look at the Word of God. How do we know the Bible is God's Word? I mean, what about the Quran? What about the Hindu holy book? What about other holy books of other faiths? How do we know the Bible is the Word of God? There are some definite things that we God has given to us that tell us that this is His Word, that we are, are not left to doubt it all. And we want to start looking at this next week because we want to become good soldiers of Christ, able to defend our faith. And when people ask us, why are you a Christian? How do you know God even exists? Why do you know the Bible is God's word? You can say, look, let me tell you, this is why. And may God use that to help the people that we know and love to come to know the truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for your truth. And Lord, you've revealed yourself in the creation, in our conscience, and you've revealed yourself specifically in the pages of Scripture. And Lord, we want to be those that Paul talked about, who are workmen, students, that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We don't want to be stupid Christians, Lord. There's nothing worse than an ignorant, dumb Christian, because that's just a lazy Christian. We have truth. You've revealed to us how we can know you exist, how we know the Bible, can know the Bible is your word. Lord, help us to learn that we might give an intelligent defense to those who ask us, prove to me your God is real and the Bible is his word. Thank you, Father. We ask all this now in Jesus' name.